Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Rachel Maddow, Tom Hartman, and On the Media. Welcome back to The Young Turks. Jake Uber, Ben Magwis, Jill Pike with you. All right, let's lighten up. Let's have some fun here. And who doesn't want to have fun with Neil Cavuto? Uh, obviously, Neil Cavuto uh, on Fox News Channel talks about business. So uh, today he'd be talking about business and the ramifications uh, to Wall Street of executing Misawi. Huh? What? Yeah, well, that could have a big effect on the market. <laughs> Is gold going to go up when we execute him? I don't know. They've got the answers here. Apparently, it's going to have a significant economic impact. That's why Cavuto's talking about it. They're like, any opportunity to talk about killing somebody, you know, on Fox News Channel, they're like, yeah. Is it an entertainment story? Well, that seems a bit of a stretch. How about a business story? Ah, good enough. Let's run with it. So here's Neil Cavuto. Now, you'll be able to see this on the youngturks.com, and you'll be able to hear it on the radio. Uh, he is going to be talking to Jonathan Honing of a curious company called Capitalist Pig Asset Management, but it seems quite fitting after you see what Mr. Honing has to say. Here you go. So is this an important reminder of just what is at stake in this ongoing war on terror? With us now, Jonathan Honig of Capital Takeoff Management and syndicated radio talk show host Herman Kane. Herman, what do you think? I don't think it's going to impact the market. As painful as it is to relive some of these testimonies, I think it does two things. First, it reminds us that this war on terror is ongoing. So I don't think there's an immediate impact on the market. But some people need to be reminded that this war is ongoing and that they should not forget 9-11-2001. Oh. Nice chosen story. Neil, uh, Musawi is evil. And the, this chilling testimony, whether it be the, from, from, the, from the World Trade Center or from the cockpit, it, it, it puts in front of you the face of evil. And I think the market will be worried, to be honest, if he gets off. I mean, a, an economy can't thrive. Well, there's no chance of that. Well, the if, only issue I, I here is if, whether he's life in prison. Well, he should be right. put to death. To be honest, I'm surprised we're giving him the, the courtesy of a trial, Neil. If I had my way, you'd bring him out back, put a bullet in his head, and toss him in the dumpster. This is That's an evil monster, way. and I just don't see how society can prosper, how the economy can prosper if this guy lives. <laughs> Jesus. I'm amazed. I love how they throw in the word market to make it seem like it's a, it's a business discussion. I like, I, I, no, 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 wait, Jill, you missed it. I don't see how the market can prosper if we don't summarily execute Musawi. George Take him and Bush throw him in a dumpster. told me to go to Disneyland after 9-11. The market should be thriving in the face of terror. <laughs> the, um, I liked the, Neil Cavuto did something that strikes me as anti-talking point there. I mean, he actually, you know, because uh, they threw up the straw man, you know. I can't believe, you know, that we can actually let him get away with this, you know. He yeah. said, oh, I don't know how the markets would react if we were to, you know, get away with this. And Cavuto was like, said, like, yeah, he's not going to get away with it. He said, well, he's like, the is, do we execute him or we keep him less? But you know what? Look, Ben, the thing is, it's not an anti-talking point thing. It's an old Howard Stern trick. No, it makes you seem reasonable. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's an old Howard Stern trick. It does two things. You know, he had the callers that would call in and say outrageous things, and he still does, right? right. And then he brings them back. Down. And then he goes, oh, no, 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 you can't say that. Wink. Okay, you can't say that. Wait. And so it does two things. One, he introduces the topic. He has you start talking about this issue. And he has it uh, put out there as if it's a, you know, a, a, a thing that should be discussed. And then number two, what it does is, as you said, Ben, it makes him seem like the reasonable one. Oh, no, no, no. We shouldn't shoot him and put him in a dumpster. And it doesn't mean that he'll be going away. But we should definitely execute him. See how execution is the moderate stance? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did Look, the American system start to fail? 
I mean, when have we heard this much how wrong the American system is and how it doesn't work in this day and age? No, 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 no. Jill, you're 100% right about this. A Fox News channel consistent theme is the American justice system does not work. We need to do things outside of it. We need to, you know, whether it's this guy, you know, they allow him to say, come on TV and talk about shooting people in, the, in an alley and putting them in a dumpster, or whether it's every single case from Natalie Holloway to the big people of Massachusetts, whatever it is, oh, guilty, guilty, guilty. Well, oh, we don't need a trial. Trials for pussies. Let's go. Execute, execute. What? No, 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 no. Diplomacy. No, let's just start the war. Start the war. Beyond that, the Constitution doesn't work, our checks and balance system doesn't work, and our justice system doesn't work. Another I mean, great point. Yeah, we absolutely. We should just cash in and make this a dictatorship. Oh, I like the clown. George Bush, I crown you king. I like the clown. The other guy just goes back to like I, the first. I crown you tyrant. The first talking point of, uh, you know, and uh, some people need to be reminded about September 11th. Yeah, because really? everybody's forgotten. Yeah, thanks. Forgot. Thanks, Kane. I, I forgot. Oh, 9-11, what's that? Be scared. Uh, American system doesn't work. Be scared. Well, I want to just touch on one thing Jill said there. It's a really good point. Listen, they, it's not just the American justice system. It's not just preemptive and senseless wars. It's also, no, 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 the Constitution, we can't, we can't be bothered with warrants. No, no, no. The president needs to be outside of the system. He needs to have this unchecked power so that he could act unilaterally, whether it's declaring war, whether it's doing, you know, a wireless, uh, warrantless wiretapping, whatever it is. Just let him, sus American system doesn't work if you listen to Fox News Channel. It's very ironic because they get this huge American flag, they wrap themselves in it, and then they go, you see how America doesn't work? Let's instead go with a system that isn't Democrat. the story. It was on the front page uh, that we did a couple of weeks ago here on the Rachel Maddow Show. It was about a guy named Thomas E. Jones. Uh, it, we, we described him as a 16-year-old boy who was given the task of delivering the cable that effectively ended World War II. The cable contained news of the uh, Japanese surrender. And we put the story on the front page here just because for, for pure historical human interest value. Uh, he st how he stopped for pancakes, uh, flirted with some girls at the diner, got pulled over for taking a U-turn, all that on the way to the White House with this very important news. And that by these actions, he actually accidentally prolonged the war, not knowing the import of that cable that he was carrying. Well, turns out uh, I lied. All totally wrong. <laughs> I didn't mean to lie. I was going based on what USA Today had reported about a new documentary, a new short documentary about this event. Turns out, not very much of it was true. Joining us on the phone to help sort some of this out is Thomas E. Jones's daughter, uh, Victoria, to help us straighten out the record. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Sure. I'm, I'm, uh, I want to apologize for having gotten this wrong. I was going on the basis of what USA Today uh, was reporting, and it seems like they uh, were reporting stuff that uh, was way more false than it was true. Apparently so. Our family really appreciates this opportunity to set the record straight for your listeners. Is it, is it true that you guys actually heard about this documentary being made for the first time because somebody in your family heard me talking about it on the radio? That's exactly how we heard about it. <laughs> okay, well, Our God. cousin, uh, Mary Zamichelli, was listening to your radio broadcast, we believe, on Wednesday, March 15th. Yeah, that sounds right. And uh, she heard about it, and she called my father and said, hey, someone's making a movie about you, but they have a few things wrong. Well, yeah, that's the first clue, because one of the things that we reported was that your father had passed away. 
Right. Not true. He's alive and well. Alive and well. Um, so the, the USA Today story that I reported on was based on this short film, uh, The Messenger, which is being called a documentary. But clearly, uh, they've got some of the major facts wrong. In addition to the fact that your father is alive, what else was wrong in that documentary? Well, they have, apparently in the movie, they have him not knowing what is in the telegram. Right. And that is incorrect because RCA, where he worked, had actually been awaiting a message from Japan. Okay. So they had held open two teletype machines for several days waiting for a message to come in. So as soon as that message came in, my father actually worked for my grandfather there, who Mm -hmm. was his boss. This was not his father, but my mother's father. My parents did not know each other then. And his boss handed in the telegram, and my father was a bicycle messenger. So he normally would have then gone, gotten on his bike, and taken the telegram wherever. But what he did was his boss said, we don't want you to waste any time. So someone else who worked in the office, Earl Allison, he worked on the teletype machines, had a car. And he said, you give Tom a ride, take him to deliver this telegram. Because Earl didn't normally deliver telegrams, he wasn't as familiar that they didn't have to go to the White House. So he's the one who started driving to the White House, and then my father said, hey, wait a minute, where are you going? Because they didn't, this is, this is August 14th, 1945. This is the, the end of the war. They know what's in this cable, and they're in the car together. Your dad isn't driving. Your dad's like 16 at the time, right? That's correct. He was not driving. And, uh, and so they head out, the, and, and they are going toward the White House. If, if, they don't, if they're not taking this cable to the White House, where are they supposed to be taking it? They have to take it to the neutral country. Switzerland, so they had to go to the Swiss legation. Which is like the Swiss embassy. Correct. Okay, so they drive toward the White House. Hey, you're going the wrong way. We actually have to go to the Swiss embassy with this thing. And they do. One of the things that I did report that's in the film is this illegal U-turn that they did, and and they did get pulled over for taking that U-turn. Correct. So that's that's one right thing. Yes, (laughs) that is correct. The date right, your dad's name right, and the U-turn are the only things right so far. That's right. (laughs) So he makes the U-turn. They get stopped by a police officer. They tell him what they have. He doesn't believe them, although in the news accounts there's some discrepancy about that, too. And um, they, he writes them a ticket, and they go on and deliver the coded message to the Swiss Embassy. And uh, now, did they stop for pancakes and flirt with waitresses? No, they didn't. <laughs> My father said he wouldn't have eaten pancakes at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This was in the afternoon? Yes, yes. This came in in the afternoon, between 4 and 4.15. And then I think the announcement from President Truman came like 7 o'clock or so. Okay. And, you know, and in the, the, the film and in the press materials for the film, um, they, they have an actor portraying your father. They have a, a man who's a, an older man who is represented in the film as your dad doing taped interviews with the filmmaker. That's not your dad. That's not my dad. My and, dad was not contacted by the filmmaker. And they, uh, the, the, some of the things that this actor describes, like, you know, meeting President Truman and being patted on the head and being told, you know, he did a, it's good news, son, it's good, all this heartwarming stuff just completely made up out of whole cloth. Apparently so. How does your dad feel about all this? Well, my dad's a pretty laid-back guy. He he didn't seem to have too much of a reaction about it. It was more, um, I think, the the kids and my mom. My mom not so much, but the kids that were really incensed about it. There's six of us. And once we got a hold of the USA Today article, which didn't happen until Saturday the 25th of March, yeah. 
um, then all six of us were pretty much on the Internet for two days, tracking down whatever we could, any articles, anybody who had ever mentioned it, people whose names were in the article, we tried to track them down. Um, my husband and I actually went on Reunion.com and, and PeopleFinders.com, those websites, and sent email messages to anybody's name we could find saying you needed to contact us immediately so that we can correct these inaccuracies. Does your father, um, has he ever been contacted by anybody, historians and people who wanted to tell his tale of, of, of his involvement in this, in this small way, but a very significant logistical way in the end of the war? Has he ever been able to tell his story to a documentarian or a historian or anybody? Well, he has been contacted. Um, actually, about a year ago, he was contacted by a man who said he was a Japanese documentary maker, hmm. and he was in New York. And he said he wanted to come down. He was trying to get a film crew together to come down and talk to my dad and maybe even go the route that they had taken. Yeah. Um, he called several times, but um, apparently he never got his film crew together because he did not come down. But this other guy who made the fake documentary seems to have done fine, got his film done <laughs> with your fake dad and his fake death and the fake pancakes. Without my dad's input, right. Victoria Jones, uh, thank you so much for telling us this story. I know that uh, I, I imagine that the uh, the resolution of this story clear enough that this not is this is not in fact your dad's story is going to play out for a little while. I'm sure that you guys have uh, have need to have some words with the filmmaker. I won't ask you about that now. I understand that's ongoing, but I appreciate the chance uh, for you to come on the air here and, uh, and and to set the record straight. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Victoria Jones, the daughter of Thomas E. Jones, about whom I told a giant like seven and a half minute lie on this radio program <laughs> uh, which was you know I didn't know it was a lie I wouldn't have told it that way I represented it as being based on this film but the film was supposed to be about the real event totally wrong I apologize uh, and I hope they uh, that kid who was uh, representing the story about the pancakes and the waitresses and all of this stuff um, who made this whole thing up? I hope that yeah, he's rightfully embarrassed. I'm sure that this will uh, resolve karmically for him in the long run. Morning yearning, it's a morning yearning. Pull the curtain shut, try to keep it dark, but the sun is burning. The sun is burning. Stephen Rademacher. He's the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. So he's your guy on this. Mm -hmm. Nonproliferation. Oh, non that's good. So that means he's not going to be in favor of launching any type of thing. Right, of course not, yeah. He says, quote, using those 50,000 centrifuges, they could produce enough highly enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon in 16 days. Telling, <laughs> that's what he told reporters in Moscow. But could they launch it? I mean, isn't that kind of another key to having a nuke? You I, have to be able to launch it? No, no, Let's no, no. pretend we live in Iranian fairy tale land, or U.S. fairy tale land at this point, and they can get a bomb in the next 25 seconds, no. and they're going to blow us to smithereens. Can they even launch it? No, no, no. Two, those are, look, two different issues. Number one, uh, could they launch it against the United States of America? No. They have no missile capability of being able to reach the United States. Now, North Korea claims they do, and they've tested some things that seem to indicate they do. Are we concerned with North Korea? No, of course not. They don't have any oil. 
and they don't threaten Israel. So why would we bother with North Korea? We let them build six nuclear weapons on Bush's watch, and we didn't do a damn thing about it. Right. Nothing. Zero, right? Iran has no capability of reaching the United States with their weapons, but they do have serious missiles that can reach allies, including Israel, of course, and Turkey. So that is a significant concern. Now, well, Israel's a significant concern. <laughs> well, you know, you start the Sunni-Shiite stuff, you start, you know, allies yeah, of America. Yeah, but we're not, uh, we're not, we're not. This administration doesn't concern itself with Turkey. Oh, you're right. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. I was being in the real world. Yeah. In the Bush world, yes, Turkey's irrelevant. Who cares if they hit it with 14 nuclear weapons? Now, uh, but that's not the issue of what their ballistic missile range is. Mm. They're... Ten years away from getting those fifty-four thousand centrifuges well, no, no. and being able to use them, Six. develop them, enrich them, and make bombs out of them. I just heard it was sixteen days away until we have to start doing nuke bomb drills. Let, Everyone let, under the desk. Let's explain a little bit as best we can, given the fact that I'm going to read this story and I do not know what a centrifuge is. Uh, we will do uh, all the detailed explanation and we will take all your calls. First of all, let me make it very clear on the record. The number one explanation you need to hear now. What's the guy's name? The secretary? Stephen Rademacher. Stephen Rademacher is a goddamn liar. Okay? 100% unadulterated, unapologetic liar. So you, you, Iran could develop weapons, nuclear weapons in 16 days? Get the fuck out of here, man. That, that is just nothing but total crap. He just meant to scare you so we can start another war. The uh, yeah, Stephen Rademacher. Remember how uh, uh, earlier in the week uh, Pat Robertson said that uh, that he raised an African American woman, not just from the dead, but from the stone cold dead. Uh, let's be fair. He said his producers. His producers have raised people from the stone. That was the expression? Stone cold. She was stone cold dead. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not, right. Not just regular dead. Uh, uh, Stephen Rademacher, stone cold liar. So here's what he says. Uh, that you. Uh, Rademacher was reacting to a statement from uh, Iranian uh, President Ahmadinejad, who said yesterday the country had succeeded, as we all know, in enriching uranium on a small scale for the first time, as Cenk said, using 164 centrifuges. The announcement defies demands by the U.N. Security Council. The U.S. fears Iran is pursuing a nuclear program to make weapons, while Iran says it is intent on purely civilian purposes to provide energy. Saidi, he's the uh, deputy minister for, for, uh, for uh, nuclear stuff in Iran, uh, he says 54,000 centrifuges will be able to enrich uranium to provide fuel for a 1,000-megawatt nuclear power plant similar to the one Russia is actually finishing in southern Iran. So all he's saying is that we'll have 54, we're going to have, we're going to try and get 54,000 centrifuges because that's what we'll need to have this power plant. Yeah, if, if Iran had 54,000 centrifuges mm -hmm. and they could pull bunnies out of their ass, then perhaps they could make a nuclear weapon, but they don't have 54,000 centrifuges and they're years away, well, decades away from getting 54,000 centrifuges. Here's what he says. Rademacher said the technology to enrich uranium to a low level could also be used to make weapons-grade uranium, saying that it would take a little over 13 years to produce enough highly enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon with the 164 centrifuges currently in use. 13 years. And mm -hmm. I see how that means we have to attack within 16 days. Yeah, and then he says, Iran has informed the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is, of course, you all know is in Vienna, that it plans to construct 3,000 centrifuges at Natanz next year. So that's 3,000, leaving us a little short of the 54,000. We calculate that a 3,000 machine cascade could produce enough uranium to build a nuclear weapon within 271 days, mm -hmm. says Rademacher. 
So less than a year. Yeah, ben, let me tell you something, okay? First of all, these are all goddamn lies. Uh, Mohammed Al-Baradai is the number one expert in the world on this. He is the head of the International Atomic Energy Association. He just won the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. He just he? won the Nobel Peace Prize. He's the guy who was 100% right on Iraq. He said exactly what level threat they are. He is concerned about Iran. He is significantly concerned about Iran. But he says their ability to make nuclear weapons, and this is the top nuclear weapons inspector in the world, is at most five years away, meaning at the minimum amount of time it would take if everything went right for Iran and they hurried up like crazy, is five years. Most likely, ten years or longer. So we're looking at a five to ten year window. And these guys are coming around with the 16 days to 271 days. So what conclusion does that lead us to, Ben and Jill? That leads us to the conclusion that these guys want war. The world awakens on the run And will soon be earning will soon be earning with hopes of better days to come that's a morning Bloomberg's news service ran a story today with a headline and this headline was on Drudge probably still is and millions and millions of Americans are reading this and it's being reported and it's all over the right wing websites this headline says Iran could produce nuclear bomb in 16 days comma US says now, you read that headline, and most people just read headlines. And you think, holy cow, Iran is 16 days away from a nuclear bomb. We better bomb them now. And, in fact, the first paragraph, Iran, defying United Nations Security Council demands to halt its nuclear program, may be capable of making a nuclear bomb within 16 days, a U.S. State Department official said. Say, what? Now, you read the article about this, you know, bomb in 16 days. And you and you look at, you know, who is it who said this? It's a guy named Stephen Rademacher. Stephen G. Rademacher. He's the Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control and Nuclear Nonproliferation. Okay, so it's his job to make sure that not too much stuff, you know, that nuclear nonproliferation is, you know, in, in some way, you know, reasonably held in check. And here he is, you know, coming out and saying this. Oh, I, I found it. And, and you have to ask yourself, why? Who is this guy and what is he actually saying? Now, here's, the, here's what we know. What we know is that your, Iran has 164 centrifuges. And that they use those 164 centrifuges to produce a small amount of 3.5% concentrated U-235, uranium that could be used in a nuclear reactor. Nuclear reactors require that uranium, natural uranium has such a low low percentage, it's like a tenth of a percent or something, such a low percentage of what's called fissionable uranium, U-235, uh, the, the uranium that will, the, the, the will disintegrate quickly and, and, and will op operate in a chain reaction kind of fashion. It has such a low percentage of it that it's actually quite stable. And so you put it in the centrifuge, you spin it around at supersonic speeds, and the heaviest stuff rolls to the bottom and the lighter stuff comes to the top, like happens in centrifuges. And you do it long enough, and you get the U-235 down there in the bottom, the heavy stuff, and you skim that out, and you've got 
you've got concentrated uranium, right? You've got the, the, just the U-235, or what's called enriched uranium. Well, with 164 centrifuges, according to Rademacher, it would take that country 13 years. Running these centrifuges 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, day and night, it would take them 13 years to produce enough uranium for one nuclear bomb. Now, if that's the case, and that's how many centrifuges they have, why did he say that they could have a nuclear bomb in 16 days? And why is that the headline? Well, it turns out that Iran has a facility in a city called Natanz. They've got a facility where they have the potential to build 50,000 centrifuges. They don't have them. They have the potential to build them. And so Stephen Rat and so now we get to paragraph three in the Bloomberg.com story. Using those fifty thousand centrifuges, this is a quote. Using those fifty thousand centrifuges, they could produce enough highly enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon in sixteen days. End of quote. Stephen Rademacher, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, told reporters today in Moscow. So he's saying, I mean, you, you, we have to figure out, you know. Is is he saying this to intentionally deceive us, or did Bloomberg take this wildly out of context? Because there aren't 50,000 centrifuges. In fact, what Iran is talking about, later down in the article, Iran has informed the Vienna-based International Atomic Energy Agency that it plans to construct 3,000 centrifuges at Natanz next year, Rademakers said. So next year they're going to build 3,000. And then he says, we calculate with the 3,000 machine cascade, they could produce enough uranium to build one nuclear weapon within 271 days. Now, how long is it going to take them to construct 3,000 centrifuges? Several years, maybe? I mean, the best guesses are they're somewhere between 5 and 11 years away from making a nuclear weapon. So why is it that Bloomberg, in the first three paragraphs, is saying that they could produce a bomb in 16 days using 50,000 centrifuges? Is this, the, uh, is this a neocon inside the Bush administration trying to whip up war? Well, it turns out Stephen Rademacher was one of the big advocates for the war in Iraq. So it would make a certain amount of sense that he's in favor of a war in Iran. But the fact of the matter is that Iraq, Iran is 49,836 centrifuges short of being able to do what this headline says they could do. Morning yearning. Another day, another chance to get it right. Must I still be learning? Must I still be learning? The idea and the presumption that the neocons make on a daily basis in their editorials and on TV that it, this will be limited and that Iran will not retaliate 
is shockingly stupid. Well, the question is, of course, Iran will retaliate. The question is, what would we do then? And as far as Iran... Sort once of, Iran retaliates, you think Bush is going to sit back and go, oh, that's okay, it was just a retaliation, we're not going to do anything. But really, I, I mean, I, th I don't know, what, what's he going to do? Where are we going to get the soldiers to invade Iran, if that's what you're talking about, unless you're talking about... I got about, an idea, Iraq. Yeah, well, but I mean, but the... Newt Gingrich said the other day, he said in I, one sentence... Uh, oh, we, you know, Iraq, yeah, we've got to get our troops out of there. Uh, later in the sentence, he said, you know, uh, we have to attack Iran. I, I, Put I, two and two together, you're going to come up with four. I understand. Newt Gingrich doesn't even have an audience with the president. And I, and I, I just mean we can't take the words of, of, of Steve Forbes and, and Newt Gingrich. We take them and take them seriously and try and do all that's possible to ward off this war. But we can't. I mean, there are also, you know, literally hundreds of Republicans saying, we can't invade Iran, and we're not. It's the neocons versus the mainstream Republicans. There is a battle out there for the president, because the president, as we all know, is of limited intellect, and they are now battling as to who is going to get to make that decision for the president. The you know Newt Gingrich does not have an audience with the president, but let's get real. It's not about Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, Steve Forbes, Bill Kristol, Michael Leiden. Uh, all these guys, they're all neocons. They've all signed the project for a new American century. And the person they definitely have an audience with is Dick Cheney. And Dick Cheney is pushing for this. The question is, is anyone else in the administration? Yeah, Chuck Hagel, Richard Luger, all these Republicans who are mainstream Republicans are saying, no, don't do it, don't do it, right? But they're not in the administration. They don't have a voice in it. Maybe, and this is, this is how desperate we are. Maybe Condoleezza Rice is the person inside the administration who's saying maybe we shouldn't do this. And it's Rice versus Cheney. I'm afraid Cheney wins that battle nine out of ten times. And so these I don't give a damn what Steve Forbes or Newt Gingrich thinks. But I care very much because they obviously are representing what Dick Cheney thinks, and he is a tremendous power inside the White House. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I, I hear you. I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure Newt Gingrich represents what Dick Cheney thinks. I, I, I actually, I think that this country would be in far better shape if Newt Gingrich were uh, vice president of the United States. Or yeah, president. well, I mean, yeah. it's Dick Cheney's Newt Gingrich on steroids. <laughs> so, you know, it, you take what Newt Gingrich says, multiply it by four or five, and you've got what Dick Cheney thinks. Look, let's get to Steve Forbes. Steve Forbes on Fox News Channel today says, when, when we have the confrontation with Iran, not if we have a confrontation with Iran, when we have the confrontation. And, of course, Fox News Channel invites Steve Forbes to say exactly that. They're not taken a surprise by this. Oh, look at Steve Forbes, along with every other quote-unquote expert or analyst we've had on this sh uh, channel for the last two months, says we should go to war with Iran. And when we do, this, man, these kids, man, these juniors, the George W. Bush, you know, and the Steve Forbes, your dad made the money. You're an idiot. You're an imbecile. You did nothing with your dad's money except waste it. So this genius, Steve Forbes, comes out and says, when we have the confrontation with Iran, the price of oil will come down. Will come down? Morning yearning with her. Morning yearning. Morning. If there's one thing that can distract the nattering nabobs from the war in Iraq, it's rumors of a new war in Iran. This week, the press and the public responded to reports that no options are off the table for dealing with the perceived Iranian threat. 
not even the possibility of using nuclear bunker buster bombs to take out Iran's burgeoning nuclear capabilities. The plans came to light last weekend in an article by New Yorker reporter Seymour Hirsch. It made Slate columnist Fred Kaplan wonder not only about President Bush's intentions, but also those of Hirsch's anonymous sources. Kaplan proposed four explanations for why insiders would leak word of a possible nuclear option to the press. He called the first one the madman theory, the idea that portraying a trigger-happy president could back an enemy down. It's a scenario with a clear historical precedent. When Richard Nixon was president, he came into office uh, thinking that he could get the North Vietnamese to back down by making them think that he was crazy, he was a madman, that he might even use nuclear weapons. So when he first got in there, he put bombers and missiles on a higher level of alert, knowing the Russians would notice this and that they might pressure the North Vietnamese to back off. That didn't do anything. Later, he stepped up bombing in North Vietnam to make it look like he was crazy. That didn't do anything. Now, there's a second version of the madman theory that you posit, and that is that the uh, Europeans, who have been reluctant to impose economic sanctions on Iran because of their close trade ties, especially for energy, might be more willing to do so if they think the alternative is madman President Bush uh, suddenly going nuclear in Tehran. Right. And uh, whether or not that's Bush's intent, it seems like it's having that effect to some degree. And it's right there in Hirsch's article. He quotes a European diplomat as saying, uh, you know, maybe we have to get together on this to bring the Iranians to their senses and, and keep this nuclear juggernaut from getting out of control. Now, there's another more mundane scenario, what you call bureaucratic politics. Tell me how that works and how Cy Hirsch and the rest of the mainstream media figure into it. Yeah, I, I think this is probably the most likely, and, and it's certainly the most transparently the case. This happens a lot. A policy is formulating in the White House or the Pentagon. There's a group of people who don't like it at all. It's also a kind of policy that would be unpopular if it were revealed. So the people who don't like it leak that it's about to happen. And then pressure builds, questions get answered. The president or the secretary of defense get uncomfortable with the questions and maybe they back off the policy. Then there's one other theory which uh, intrigues me, and that is that it's a uh, Trojan horse in advance of a much tinier Trojan horse. You call it the three options theory. Right. Well, th this is another kind of standard bureaucratic tactic where let's say you're a, an assistant secretary of defense or something and you're writing a policy memo where you, you want to make sure that your recommendation gets the best play. You know, it's like option one, declare all-out war. Option two, surrender. And then option three is what you want to do. So it could be that the nuclear option is put on the table so that if Bush ends up attacking Iran but doesn't use nuclear weapons, it'll look like a relative act of restraint. One of the risks of all this, I guess, is that it can spiral out of control and force the president's hand in uh, maybe a catastrophic way. Well, yeah, there's a term for this. It's called playing chicken. You know, you two guys driving cars straight into each other on the highway at midnight, and you hope that one of them or both of them veer off the road before they crash into each other. Herman Kahn, who was a nuclear strategist in the early 60s, said that one way that you win a game of chicken is that you remove your steering wheel and wave it out your window so that the other guy knows that he has to pull off. He has no choice. Well, you know, the problem is both sides, the Bush administration and the Iranian president, are revving their engines so loudly 
that they could both be, uh, to use Khan's metaphor, unscrewing the steering wheels off the panel right now and forcing a situation where they both crash into each other. I mean, it's it's one of the great dangers of playing these clever strategic games is that you could end up killing yourself. Okay, so a game of chicken can happen on a back road and nobody sees it, or it can happen in full view of a world audience. Does that change the dynamics of the game itself? Yeah, I think it does. You know, Congress finds out about it. Congress holds secret hearings. They ask you know, is this real? We want to know about it if you do this. This is a bad idea. People come and talk with the president. People come and talk with the chiefs. Maybe a general or two resigns in protest. And this, no doubt, is at least one of the motives for Hirsch's sources to bring it out into the open so that enough people express such horror at it that maybe it won't happen. All right, Fred. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Fred Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate. Full disclosure, he's married to Brooke. Like a summer rose, I'm a victim of the fall, but I'm soon returning. I'm soon returning. Uh, it looks like the Pentagon has uh, put together, and the White House has asked them to put together, a fun little plan to do bombing of Iran. Nah, okay, we're having fun already. That's a disastrous enough idea. Uh, but get this, it gets better. Uh, the bombing is going to involve uh, nuclear weapons. Could. Could involve nuclear weapons. Yes. Because we would drop bombs on a country that is at this point nearly defenseless, really, with their... Uh, Air Force, really, what are they going to do? They're going to beat our Air Force? Uh, And because they might develop nuclear weapons five to ten years from now, we're going to show them that that is unacceptable by dropping a nuclear bomb on their head. And how powerful nuclear weapons aren't. Um, And how they shouldn't want them. I like the first paragraph. It's a big story by uh, Cy Hirsch um, in in The New Yorker, but there have been uh, follow-ups, and one of the follow-ups in The Washington Post. I I just like the first paragraph of the story. Bush administration is studying options for military strikes against Iran as part of a bar- broader strategy of coercive diplomacy. <laughs> I don't, war is not coercive diplomacy. War is the end of the diplomacy. Yeah. yeah. When you use a nuclear bomb on a country, it's not part of any type of diplomacy, uh, nurturing diplomacy or coercive diplomacy. Well, we saw how good they were with diplomacy with Iraq. I mean, true, they yeah. said that was that was what they really wanted. They, diplomacy first and foremost. Yeah, that's true. They did after that. we drop bombs on you. And you know, they call this uh, if they, they go beyond course of diplomacy, they call this a preventative war. Really? How would we be preventing the war by starting one? How is that preventing a war? No, you see what what that is is starting a war. And technically, by the way, and not just technically, but in reality, that is a war of aggression. When you attack a country that didn't attack you and you drop nuclear bombs on them, that is nothing but a war of aggression. And it is a war crime. And I'll tell you this right now. If President Bush and Vice President Cheney order that, they they order a nuclear attack on Iran, they are war criminals, they should be arrested, tried, and convicted as war criminals. I love how they think they're the only people on the face of the planet that don't want Iran to have nuclear warfare. So it's like we have we're the only ones that want this. I don't I don't think the rest of the world is getting it and this is the only way it could be done. Really? I certainly don't want that country to have nuclear nuclear weapons. Do they, you? 
Yeah, it's, I just I don't think I would I don't think I would attack them with nuclear weapons to make to make that point. You're exactly right, Joe. And the, the, of course, these idiots. The only thing they think is, well, there's only really two options. You get one is you try some cursory nonsense diplomacy where you go and yell at the UN, and after they don't do what you want, no matter what, and you yell at the country you're pretending to deal with or trade with or negotiate with, and then uh, you go, immediately go to option two which no one else is brave enough to do but George Bush, and that is invade. And Cy Hirsch says in The New Yorker uh, that George Bush believes that no other Democrat or Republican would take this action. On that, he's exactly right. And that so it falls to him before 2008 to make sure that he, quote-unquote, yeah. saves Iran by attacking it and bombing it. But he wants that to be his legacy, which I think is actually the most important thing to Bush at this point. It's not about keeping us safe. It's about what he leaves behind. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I like it that he's, like, pissed because Truman has that damn legacy of being the only president to use nuclear weapons. Yeah, I could top him. I'll do, you know, I'll, 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 I'll do three, it. four, five, six bombs, nuclear bombs on Iran. Uh, and most of the opposition for this, of course, <laughs> coming from the people who would have to do it, uh, the military. Who is reacting with uh, alarm to the, not just the nuclear strategy, but to uh, uh, but to any strategy? Uh, one, because I think they 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 realize that they don't want to be part of a country that d uh, engages in wars of aggression. But they are worried about literally how they can handle all these things with uh, already having been put in a ridiculously difficult spot in Iraq. Well, actually, that's very true, and they're very concerned, and they're voicing those concerns. By the way, this is not just Cy Hirsch in The New Yorker, although Cy Hirsch so far has been exactly right on everything he's reported in the past. Today, it was skepticism about that. Oh, Abu Ghraib, Cy Hirsch, yeah, right. Oh, whoops, he was totally right. Um, but uh, it's also the Washington Post. They've used their sources. We've put uh, the New Yorker piece and the Washington Post piece on the website on the youngturks.com. You can check it out for yourself. And what Hirsch is reporting is that uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have gotten together. This is the top generals in the country. And they have made a decision, which they are going to deliver to George Bush. They haven't delivered it yet, but they're planning to soon deliver it to George Bush. And through these leaks, they've already, in essence, delivered it, saying... We will not uh, tolerate using nuclear weapons on Iran. It's funny because the, the military officials uh, uh, and specialists, it says here in the Washington Post, they're viewing the saber rattling with alarm. I'm reading right from the uh, – and I'm going to tie the Post piece and the Cy Hirsch piece together. A strike at Iran, uh, Jenk and Jill uh, say these military officers, would at best just delay its nuclear program by a few years but could inflame international opinion against the United States, particularly in the Muslim world and especially within Iran. I love the could. But could inflame international opinion against the United States. Really? You think? You think? Yeah. Particularly in the Muslim world. Huh. Maybe. And maybe, and especially within Iran. Oh. Really? But that, so, okay. It's the most obvious thing in the world. I think even a, even a journalist interested in, uh, and they did a great job on these stories. I'm not knocking them. But even the, interested in fairness, uh, you can drop the, 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 uh, the subjective. You can drop the could. Yeah, it, it, imagine, it, look, those are my, you know, Ben's 100% right. You, you saw what the reaction was to the Danish cartoons. Yeah. To the Danish cartoons. Now, we dropped nuclear weapons on another Muslim country that did not attack us and that also what? has a lot of oil. And what do you think? You think that could could inflame tensions with the rest of the Muslim world? No, there are two different stories. Of course, the, the Washington Post story does not talk expressively about nuclear weapons to the degree that the New Yorker story does. But with the point that I think ties them together most is that, uh, as again, I said, military officers and specialists reading from the story by Peter Baker, uh, Dan, uh, Daphna Linzer, and Thomas Ricks in the Washington Post that appeared Sunday. Uh, 
that they they view the saber rattling with alarm and that they say this could inflame tensions inside the Muslim world and especially Iran against the United States. Of course it could. So the Bush administration, as Cy Hirsch reports, hurt, hurt. I'm sorry, man. I got to cut you off for a second. I, we didn't focus enough on the last part of it that you mentioned that you, you emphasized, especially within Iran. Especially within Iran. You think? Yeah, yeah. I think if we drop nukes on him, that might really aggravate people inside Iran. Yeah, I. There's some chance of that. Well, let's. I I'll, mean, who? And what's amazing? I'm sorry. Before you go on, Ben, is that these neocons, in according to the New Yorker piece, think no, that will help. That will cause the Iranians to come on the population to come on our side. Right. Well, I mean, we, how colossally stupid can do you we have to be? Stay on this point just for a second. Do you mind? Well, no. I, I we we have yes, we can. And but I have to make the main point that that relates to it because, of course, the as I said, the Washington Post piece doesn't so much talk about nuclear weapons, and there are many options, as Cy Hirsch points out. There are bombings without nuclear weapons, and there are bombings with nuclear weapons. These new bunker busters. And the funny thing is, is that the ironic thing is, is the military officers and specialists are objecting initially just to the airstrikes mm -hmm. without nuclear weapons. Because they say, look, it's going to turn the world and Iran against us. The Muslim, the, the regular, the, the regular world. I apologize to the Muslims are part of the regular world. It'll turn the non-Muslim world, the Muslim world, and Iran against us, right? And so the Bush and it will only delay the program by a few years. It doesn't get you anywhere. It just pushes it off. And so the Bush administration's response to that was essentially, as Cy Hirsch points out, good point. I like that. What if we use nuclear weapons? That would not delay it by a few years. That would delay it by a few centuries because we would be using nuclear weapons on the country and they wouldn't really be able to fix the damage very quickly. Right. And then the nuclear guys, the, the, uh, the military guys respond to that with, no, 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 that we weren't, that wasn't, we weren't saying, okay, use nuclear weapons. We were against any sort of military strike, regular bombs, nuclear bombs, group it all together. That's to me how the t two stories sort of tie together most is that the Bush administration's response to the military guy's reaction was, well, we could use nuclear weapons, and then, then problem, that problem mission solved. Well, Jill, one, one more quote here. New Yorker says, uh, the Joint Chiefs had agreed to give President Bush a formal recommendation stating that they are strongly opposed to considering the nuclear option for Iran. So at least there's some people who are still sane in the country, and I love how our generals are saving us from war. God bless. Thanks for listening, everybody. That song was by Ben Harper. It was called Morning Yearning. Now, I recommend that everybody go to don'tattackiran.org help support their cause. I don't even know what else to suggest. Have a good one.